The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. You're listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome to Spirit of Recovery, the place where spirituality and recovery meet, with Reverend Anna Schaus, Ph.D. from Soul Matters Ministry in Olympia, Washington. If you'd like to join in the discussion, email us at spiritofrecovery at unity.fm or call into the program with your questions. Now, here's your host, Reverend Anna Schaus. Welcome to Spirit of Recovery, the place where spirituality and recovery meet, where we support your spiritual growth in recovery. My name is Anna Schaus, and I'm your host, and I want to thank all of you for listening with us today. We love uh, the fact that's there and getting good things from Spirit of Recovery, and we are uh, loving it when you call in or when you email us in, uh, whether it's during the program or not. We love hearing from you, and we love hearing your posts uh, on Facebook, so thank you for doing that and letting us know that uh, you're getting a lot of inspiration and support from what we're doing here in Spirit of Recovery, and uh, we just got a post the last week or two uh, from someone who's uh, out of the U.S. and really uh, grateful for getting the support for recovery through Spirit of Recovery. So thanks again for letting us know that you're listening with us. And thank you also for letting your friends and the people that are in your recovery community and your unity community um, and the other circles that you travel in know about Spirit of Recovery. I love broadcasting on this topic. It's certainly one that's dear to my heart and a love that we can bring you great guests every week. Uh, We also have lots of good programs here on Unity.fm, Unity Online Radio, so I hope that you're tuning in to those as well. Know that you can listen to us live. You can also listen to our archives. You can go to www.unity.fm backslash program backslash spirit of recovery and find our archives anytime. You can also listen through your... um, mobile listening devices of various kinds, and so you can take Spirit of Recovery with you pretty much anywhere you go now. Every week we talk about topics that are important to the recovery community. We have guests that are knowledgeable, down-to-earth, and innovative. These are people that are either in recovery themselves or who work with or write for recovering people. And we bring you practical information that you can use and lively discussions that get you thinking. I always want you to know that Spirit of Recovery is a welcoming place, that if you're a person that's in recovery from any kind of an addiction or if you're a family member that's in your own recovery as a family member, 
or you're a family member or friend of somebody that's got the disease of addiction, whether or not uh, either of you are actively in the recovery process, you're just curious, interested, want some support, want some information, you're very much welcome here. Or anybody that's just interested in the recovery process or just curious. We're glad you're listening and you're welcome to call in with your comments or your questions or to email us. Again, my name is Anna Schaus and I'm your Spirit of Recovery host. I'm a Unity Minister and a Recovery Counselor. Also, I'm a person who has in my own circle of love and friendship many people that have the disease of addiction and those relationships got me involved in an active path of personal growth and recovery, involvement with the 12 steps as a family member and into my own spiritual development. And ever since then, my walk has been an integration of the unity principles and the recovery principles and that walk keeps richly transforming my life and keeps me growing. So, again, I'm very very delighted, very grateful to have the opportunity to share these ideas with you about recovery, about spirituality, and to bring you great guests, and also to hear what you're experiencing in your spirituality and your recovery walk. Today, our topic is honesty, the foundation of spiritual living, lighting the path to spiritual recovery. We know that uh, in the process of the disease of addiction, whether you're a family member uh, or whether you actively have a substance addiction or active process addiction such as gambling or spending or uh, something like that, that uh, we know that dishonesty is a part and parcel of what's happening in active addiction. We know that the insides of us don't match the outsides and our actions don't match our words. And um, even a lot of times we can't really quite tell what's real and what's not. And life gets very confusing. So uh, spirituality and the recovery process invite us into radical honesty. That's key. That's the foundation of spirituality and of recovery. So today I have uh, with me my guest, Arthur Messenger. Arthur's going to be talking with us today about the importance of honesty and about how foundational it is and always has been to the recovery and spirituality process. Arthur is the author of the book, Living the Twelve Steps of Recovery, and it is a wonderful uh exposition of the 12 steps it's very personal and has beautiful line illustrations of uh people that uh you would recognize not that you'd recognize their faces i don't mean that but that you would definitely see these are real people people that are in the recovery process in a beautiful way of talking about uh 12-step recovery uh, in uh, in an easy to read format and a, a profound work that arthur has authored you can read more about that on his website, living12stepsrecovery.com, and that's all those words spelled out, living12stepsrecovery.com. You can read more about that book and um, see what's in it. Arthur is a pseudonym, and uh, he is someone who has degrees in communication management. His emphasis has been in public relations and advertising. He resides in the Pacific Northwest, and he has also written essays, interviews, and poetry, and an award-winning play, The Insurrection, aboard United Flight 93, about 9-11. And he also blogs, so you can, again, go to that website, living12stepsrecovery.com, and see his blog. Arthur's also working on a new book, and he's going to share some things with that, uh, from that with us, and it's called Tales from the Center of the Herd, and we'll find out more about that later. 
So, Arthur, welcome to Spirit of Recovery. Anna, very glad to be here with you today, and blessings to you and all of the listeners out in the Internet world of radio. Great. And Arthur, read us first, if you would, the September 4th reading from Living the 12 Steps of Recovery. Inspire us with the reading for the day here. Thank you, Anna. I'd be happy to. You know, the ninth step, we made direct amends to such people whenever possible, except when to do so, would injure them or others, is the theme of all of the essays in the book um, this month. The book is a classical revival of all the steps in the traditions, broken into uh, essays uh, in 30-day formats. The first three weeks of the month is dedicated to the step, and the last week is dedicated to the corresponding numbered tradition. Today, for September 4th, the reading is, Our First Amends Goes to Our Family. Most of us want to begin our amends process where we may have done the most harm, our family. We usually want to sit right down and admit the damage our drinking has done them, making our best expressions of apology, yet there is a natural tendency to go one step farther admitting other defects which made us hard to live with. We may want to curb that inclination. During the, those sharp morning hangovers in our usual renaissance, we most often blamed ourselves, our family, or the world for our past behavior and troubles. The present situation ought to be different. On our first occasion, we concur that keeping it simple, holding to a general admission, is far better than digging up old and harrowing episodes languishing on the details. Rather than exhausting dramatic efforts to make things clear, we can take our time. That is the method most of us feel to be better judgment. After all, our misadventures, these poor folks can only do so much in one dose. There will be plenty of time later to expound in detail. If we find a need to do so exists at all, Though we may be more than willing to reveal the very worst of our transgressions, we'll want to be sure and remember that amends are best made brief in their first attempt. We cannot buy our peace of mind at the expense of others. We're going to need understanding subjects while we work through our technique. So our family is our best choice when we make our first amends. More often than not, they suffered the greatest. Thank you, Arthur. Thank you very much. That's beautiful. It's a lot of wisdom in there. And, you know, as you were reading, I was thinking that this step and, and the way that you were uh, talking about the ninth step in there, the amends step, making those amends to those people that um, we have harmed in the midst of our disease, whatever form that disease took, really does have a lot to do with honesty on a lot of levels. Could you comment on that? Well, you know, there's two dimensions that, that I would really like to discuss in terms of honesty today. And they are, you know, the natural forms that we would think of. One is dishonesty and its antithesis honesty. Uh, like me, many of you in recovery have found there's another indispensable reference book that we use almost as often as our big book and basic reference. It's the dictionary. Briefly, here are the initially important yet simple definitions on this installment's focus of discussion. Honesty is the quality or fact of being honest, 
uprightness and fairness, truthfulness, sincerity, or frankness, freedom from deceit or fraud, and its antithesis, dishonesty, a disposition to lie, cheat, or steal, to defraud, a deceiving act or statement. This can be enlarged to a point of uh, pathology, where a person becomes a chronic, compulsive, and even a sociopathic liar. We can all be mistaken innocently, but just not paying attention. But if it's our intent to deceive, that's dishonesty. Well, wait, you say, what about the proverbial white lie and all that? If what you mean is that when you purposefully deceive someone to keep from hurting their feelings, telling them information you've decided they don't need to know by either being silent, changing the subject, or furnishing false information to keep from shattering and shocking their feelings, you have to make the call as to whether that's ethical or moral. Does your honesty standard require you, and should you be rigorous in all our instances? How much strict scrutiny honesty should we really demand of ourselves? A white lie can easily disguise something much more important, the dishonest withholding of important material evidence. Um, don't get it. Okay. All right, then. You want another example, and I don't blame you. How about this one? You don't tell a blind woman that it's a good thing she cannot see because the man she just married is as ugly as a troll, or vice versa. It would be brutally honest. That's not dishonest. It's actually considerate. And by the way, who are we to judge, huh? Especially if we nearly started snickering. But let's say your best friend is telling you that he just got engaged to a woman you know is out with other men while they've been together. If you just remain quiet about it, is that minding your own business and being discreet, or is it being dishonest? That could be withholding material evidence. It's deceit, but it's your call. You could just stick to your own side of the street. It depends on whether honesty coincides with your own loyalty test. So here's my point then. I guess what was meant as the blanket necessity of rigorous honesty in the 1935 version could be just too rigorous for realistic contemporary standards. I like the description of regular honesty. Honesty isn't always black and white or right and wrong. There are situations when one's own ethical standards apply. They're judgment calls, like self-incrimination. They're gray areas. And since we've gotten into judgment and ethics or lack of it, uh, you know, let's go on to honesty in recovery, starting with its classical importance, beginning with the four absolutes of the Oxford group, which uh, are the fundamental principles that the 12 steps are all built on. Their absolute love, honesty, unselfishness, and purity. The first principle of recovery's path to a spiritual awakening is honesty. Know what's amazing? The word is never mentioned in the actual body of any of the 12 steps, though it's fair to say that it's implied in step one in our admission of powerlessness. The original author calls upon using strong repetition in his immortal essay at the beginning of chapter five. The big book of Alcoholics Anonymous has it in the section called How It Works. Addressing those who fail to recover, it states that they are usually men and women who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. 
There are such unfortunates. They're not at fault. They seem to have been born that way. They are naturally incapable of grasping and developing a manner of living which demands rigorous honesty. Their chances are less than average. There are those, too, who suffer from grave emotional and mental disorders, but many of them do recover if they have the capacity to be honest. The explanation is such that it implies that those who are unfortunately born that way, do they mean pathologically dishonest or sociopathic, are hapless victims of mental disease or some yet undiagnosed genetic anomaly. And as such, they cannot help themselves. Maybe a little antiquated and unrealistic. In my mind, I don't know of anyone who was born that way, but I do believe that it can become a pathological condition of the afflicted when they have resorted to its constant use as a defense mechanism. A conditioned response developed over time, maybe years. Perhaps the sociopathic narcissist who is without conscience and having a perverse sense of self-importance and self-righteousness would then use this as an excuse for acquiring their pathological pattern of constant lying. If it could help them manipulate someone into doing or thinking what they wanted, you can count on it. You've heard the common explanation, I can't help it, I was born this way, or even less rational, I am powerless over myself. There's mostly no such thing, other than in the figment of the person's imagination. To my knowledge, there is no Pinocchio syndrome. It does not exist, a lie unto itself, other than... What about someone who is a chronic late-stage alcoholic or addict or compulsive gambler um, in sex addiction or codependent? Are they able to help themselves? Obviously not. That's why they came to the point of admitting their affliction. They need help. They cannot do it on their own. After all, pathological, by definition, means dealing with a diseased or mentally disturbed state. But here's what the pros say about the difference between sociopathic and pathological liar, chronic liar or habitual liar. Same, same, huh? What is the difference between a sociopath, a compulsive, a pathological, or chronic, and a habitual liar? A sociopath is typically defined as someone who lies incessantly to get their way and does so with little concern for others. A sociopath is often goal-oriented, i.e., lying is focused, it is done to get one's way. Sociopaths have little regard or respect for the rights and feelings of others. Sociopaths are often charming and charismatic, but they use their talented social skills in manipulative and self-centered ways. A compulsive liar is defined as someone who lies out of habit. Lying is their normal and reflexive way of responding to questions. Compulsive liars bend the truth about everything, large and small. For a compulsive liar, telling the truth is very awkward and uncomfortable, while lying feels right. Compulsive lying is usually thought to develop in early childhood due to being placed in an environment where lying was necessary to protect themselves. For the most part, compulsive liars are not overly manipulative and cunning, unlike sociopaths. Rather, they simply lie out of habit, an automatic response which is hard to break and one that takes its toll on a relationship. Up until that point... We're going to have to take a break right now. It's time for our first... uh, Break will be a very on very short break, but uh, join us and we'll be right back to talk some more about honesty, the foundation of spiritual living.
As Unity Online Radio continues to expand its programming and outreach to the world, we count on the support of listeners like you. Please make your donation today. Go to www.unity.fm and click on Donate Now. If you've ever wondered how a specific Bible verse might be interpreted metaphysically, then Interpret This is for you. In Interpret This, Unity Minister Rev. Ed Townley answers your questions about the Bible and how to apply its verses to your life with passion, depth, and spiritual insight. To submit a question or to enjoy any of his numerous metaphysical interpretations, visit unity.org and click on the Interpret This box. Join your favorite Unity Online Radio hosts for Cruise in the Caribbean, November 10th to 17th, 2012. On this fun-filled Caribbean adventure, enjoy sunshine, exceptional dining, and island excursions. Feed your spirit with music, message, and meditation, plus one-on-one time with some of your favorite hosts. That's Cruise in the Caribbean, November 10th to 17th, 2012. To learn more, go to unity.fm slash cruise. A little more sunset, a little more sea, a little less do and a lot more be. Listening to Spirit of Recovery, the place where spirituality and recovery meet, with Reverend Anna Schaus, PhD. If you'd like to share your questions, comments, and experience with today's topics, call us now or email us at spiritofrecovery at unity.fm. We now return to Spirit of Recovery. Welcome back to Spirit of Recovery. And if you're just joining us, my topic is Honesty, the Foundation of Spiritual Living, uh, Lighting the Path to Spiritual Recovery. And my guest is Arthur Messenger. Arthur is the author of the book, Living the Twelve Steps of Recovery, um, which has daily readings that do reflect on the Twelve Steps and some beautiful uh, line drawing illustrations in it. You can read more about Arthur and his book at uh, the website living12stepsrecovery.com. Um, Arthur also is degreed in communication management and is the author of several other essays and interviews and poetry and an award-winning play. And so we're just delighted to have Arthur with us today uh, talking about honesty. And you can also uh, read on his blog on his website about some other thoughts that he has about honesty. Before I get back to my conversation with Arthur, I'd like you to join me, if you would, in a serenity minute, in a moment of prayer, a moment of turning to our higher power and opening up to that presence in our lives. So I invite you to relax and share with me this serenity minute, this constructive idea. I see myself through the compassionate and clear eyes of my higher power. Honesty 
is a gift. I see myself through the compassionate and clear eyes of my higher power. Honesty is a gift. Thank you, friends, for joining me in the Serenity Minute, and I hope that that was refreshing. I hope that opened up your mind and your heart to that beautiful presence that is your higher power. And so now we're back with my guest, Arthur Messenger, talking about honesty, the foundation of spiritual living, lighting the path to spiritual recovery. So, Arthur, you were really sharing with us some very uh, profound and important insights on the topic of honesty. And I know you were talking about the idea of, um, uh, you know, what's what's real honesty? When is it just cruelty? When is it? De- when are we deceiving ourselves? You know, sort of parsing out some of those differences. And then certainly, you were talking with us about the whole concept of uh, from the Alcoholics Anonymous uh, Big Book about the idea of are there are are not people that are born with the inability to be honest. So let me ask you this, Arthur: Why is it so important to recovery and to spirituality to be honest? What's the big deal? You know, when you um, wrote the uh, um, lead-up to our interview today and and posted it on Facebook, um, you talked about how um, honesty is a a confusing state for the alcoholic and the addict, Mm -hmm. and that we don't often, you know, honor things within ourselves, uh, and then we have a, a completely different facade that we present on the outside, and that there is a confusion that exists because of our um, addiction and compulsion. Uh, you know, our minds are just not working right. And as a result of that, I think that the real importance, Anna, lies in uh, essentially that we delude ourselves uh, into thinking that we can control or modify our addictions. And we do that hopelessly over and over and over again until through using the first step of admission, we finally come to the conclusion that there is something that we must do about it. What do you think? Right. So the, it's like the dishonesty keeps... Key is part of what keeps a person stuck in the addiction. It, be, it almost becomes a, which is the chicken and which is the egg issue. I feel very much the same way. Uh, um, I think that uh, you know that uh, that uh, the dishonesty actually sometimes uh, is is as I said. You know, the, it becomes habitual um, on the uh, cusp of uh, being pathological when uh, someone is in a chronic late stage of alcoholism or or addiction or even into behavioral addictions. Uh, it just gets to the point to where you're constantly making excuses for yourself to. Continue uh, the progression of your addiction, and and unless that changes, unless there's actually a point at which you honestly and with fact and with reality in mind look at yourself, it's it's going to stay that way, isn't it? What propels a person to have that moment of honesty? Well, I think that, uh, you know, during our break, you, you uh, uh, said a very, very nice little prayer. And, and I think that uh, for most of the people that use a spiritual program of recovery, that their effort to make a connection, um, especially in the, in the second step where we, uh, you know, admit uh, or we um, 
understand that there is a power greater than ourselves that can restore us to sanity. I think that the fact that we understand and we admit that our behavior is insane, we're not of right mind, and that there is a power, which you have identified and many of us do, as a, our higher power that can restore us, that's the point at which uh, that's, it's the springboard upon which sobriety and recovery begins, in my opinion. What's your opinion? Yeah, I think that's true. I think, uh, again, there's no magic answer really to that question, but I know uh, family members are also caught up in uh, in the dishonesty when the disease is active and because their family members are lying to themselves in a sense about what, you know, that things are going to change or that this time it'll be different, even though the behavior um, is not any different. And for uh, from that end of it, from the family member end of the dishonesty and the beginning of honesty, a lot of times it's, it's one of those indefinable moments where somehow it's like you see at the flash of reality. Maybe it's, it's the moment where you see your loved one passed out for the billionth time and you get it, that nothing's going to change unless something changes, or maybe you've just had enough. You know, you're tired. Um, family members are sick and tired of being sick and tired, and somehow it begins to dawn in on them that uh, that reality starts to break in, I guess, starts to break through the fog. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or, Anna, maybe you um, have had a friend who has taken you to an Al-Anon meeting, and you've heard somebody say the definition of insanity that we all share in common, and that is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. Mm-hmm. And the thing that we're doing over and over again, expecting different results from, is being dishonest with ourselves and those that we love trying to create some situation that really only exists in our imagination to deal with the crooks of the alcoholism or the addiction. And we fool ourselves in that process, and that isn't being honest with ourselves, is it? Right. Yeah, yeah, it's really a a, a dishonest way of living. And it's interesting because... Um, you know, a person can say, well, I'm, you know, what they call cash register honest, meaning I wouldn't steal money or, you know, I wouldn't shoplift something. And sometimes it's difficult for uh, the person with the active substance or process addiction as well as for the family members to recognize it all as what's going on in the disease as dishonesty. And sometimes it's, it's certainly based in sincere ignorance. I mean, people don't know what's going on all the time, you know, when they're in the midst of the active disease. So what do you think well, about there are that? Two situ- Go ahead. Go ahead. There are two situations in which, uh, you know, I think that addicts and the people that are affected by them act, and, and uh, one of them is self-delusion. You know, we just get done uh, uh, touching on this briefly when I was talking earlier. As addicts and alcoholics, we have to learn to spin or rationalize and imagine circumstances which make us in situations other than they really are. I think that all of us, uh, at least who have been in that position, uh, remember when we I said, oh, I can quit. I'm just not ready yet. You know, the victim mentality. If you had my blah, blah, blah life, you know, you'd escape too. I'm not like the rest of you. And all of that really is dishonesty with self. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and then there's are, the chronic rational. Go ahead. Um, 
the chronic rationalizer, of course, is I'm an addict, I'm an alcoholic, and no sane person would, uh, in this situation, uh, wouldn't be. Uh, thus, seeing things through a per- perspective of our warped imaginations and, you know, set to view a prism that protects us from reality and the whole truth of things, the real facts of the situation. You know, we may not be drunk or stoned or living uh, addictive behavior anymore, but we can apply these dishonest filters to even the clearest of situations in our recovery. And once we start, it's like drinking, drugging, or behaving. Uh, In a flash, we're back in our old patterns, living in the insanity of being untruthful with ourselves. So in this regard, we have to practice, uh, you know, honesty. And that's why I think that uh, in the original um, uh, works, uh, it was described as rigorous, you know. Um, Whether I use my own term of regular or not, uh, you know, that's what needs to be done. We need to see things clearly, factually, in reality as they are and not as our old imagination and rationalization would have made them. How do you feel about that? Yeah, tell us some more about that in recovery, because that really is essential. And, um, you know, everybody I've ever known in recovery, and including uh, myself as a family member engaged in this 12-step process, uh, struggles with that. It's it's easy uh, to fall back, again, maybe not into the old situation of the intensely active, you know, addiction, but still those behaviors behaviors like you said of the dishonesty can can crop up so how do you deal with that and it kind of touches on what you were saying in the first uh, segment there arthur about the the sense of compulsive uh lying or whatever what do you do when you find yourself in recovery wanting to stretch the truth a little bit or as you were talking about tell the white lies how do you deal with that I think, Anna, that this is why we have the program of the steps and traditions uh, to guide us through our recovery. It is through these principles that if we explore them that we find the answers to questions like the one that you just had. In step two, uh, we admit that there is a power greater than ourselves that can restore us to sanity. Most of the time I hear people explain that as, oh, that's the first place where I came to believe that there was something outside of myself. Well, yes, I agree, but that statement is very qualified. And the important part to me that many, many don't uh, uh, really take into consideration is can restore us to sanity. I mean, frankly... Our behavior as chronic alcoholics and and addicts and even our behavior as being... Oh, uh, you know what I mean, uh, uh, codependent. Uh, and my definition for that is uh, my need for approval fueled by my fear of rejection. Uh, you know, when we do that, we patronize ourselves and, and what we know to be really true and even those that we care about, you know, because uh, we, we want to be loved. And, and so we need to have some principles to apply, and that's, that's where the steps come in. And the next one that is of tremendous importance to me is, uh, at least from the addict's point of view and the alcoholic's point of view, step six, you know, that we become entirely ready to have him remove all these defects of character. Uh, well, the defect of character that we're looking to have removed is our disillusionment, or I mean, not our disillusionment, but our our delusionment, our delusion that, you know, that we're not alcoholic. And the chronic rationalization that we do to justify the things that we do to the people that we do, always finding an excuse or an explanation or a mitigation. 
And, you know, we are uh, in recovery, and, and those who are also in other forms of recovery, seekers of truth. We have clouded our lives and our existences for so very long, Anna, you know, that uh, we, we just don't know anymore. And so we have to make a regular practice of, of applying these steps. And then finally, and um, for me, uh, it's the tenth step, you know. Uh, we continue to take personal inventory, and we were wrong, promptly admit it. That's how we correct that pattern of being dishonest. You know, we may not be doing it on purpose to begin with, or it may become a habit. And as I said earlier, you know, it may become a point that we have become habitual or chronic or, uh, you know, compulsive in terms of our, our lying, you know, to the point of being on the brink of, of, of pathological. But the way that we can overcome that is to apply the steps. And the tenth step asks us, first of all, to calm ourselves, to step back, and to look at the situation in its reality, you know. And that in itself is different behavior, isn't it, than than an active addictive. Active addictive behavior uh, is like got to do it right now, rush, rush, anxiety, nothing about stopping and thinking. Reaction versus uh, compulsion, huh? Or I mean Mm -hmm. reaction versus responding is what I meant. Right, right. So, uh, as, as addicts, we react. As people in recovery, we respond. You know, what we do is not a knee-jerk thing, you know, where our emotions uh, let us take care of, uh, you know, uh, exercise our judgment. You know, we, we at that point, you know, uh, step back and think about what it is by first calming ourselves and asking ourselves the questions, you know. What am I angry about or, or why do I need to lie? Uh, am I really telling the truth? Um, these things are, you know, the, the methods by which we come to be truth seekers again and to be honest. Uh, oftentimes I, I will hear people talk about the, the concept of a white lie, you know, that it, uh, that you can, you can say something or not say something, withhold material evidence, uh, and, and then it's really not a lie, uh, if you're sparing someone else's feelings. I'm not so sure that I agree with that when it comes to the point of the alcoholic in the attic, but I think that this is true as far as dishonesty is concerned. Sometimes we learn through the practice of the tenth step that it's just a lot better for us to be quiet. Mm-hmm. 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 Sometimes, yes, that, that old test of like, can maybe who am I serving? If I'm serving my own ego needs uh, to protect, I mean, in a, in a negative sense, then that may not be such a good thing. But if I'm genuinely serving, you gave a good example earlier on today about, um, you know, if you're doing something that's cruel, um, you know, that old test of, of if I'm going to say something, is it true, is it um, necessary, and is it kind? What do you think about that? Mm. Well, I think that those are really great questions to ask oneself, you know, especially on contemplation of whether we have told the truth. And, you know, the tenth step asks us uh, at a certain point to uh, when we are wrong, promptly admit it. Well, it may be, you know, really kind of, uh, socially inapropos to say, oh, gee, you know, I missed this particular um, uh, situation, and, you know, that actually doesn't uh, uh, truthfully represent it. And I think that happens to a lot of people in early sobriety. They're trying so hard, you know, to, to practice the program that they don't realize that, you know, in the practice of the 10th step, it, 
the most important thing is that we realize, you know, that, that we haven't told the truth. I mean, the truth has a couple of different um, aspects, doesn't it? It's our truth with ourselves and our truth with others. For instance, mm-hmm. with ourselves, our, our, ac- our active addiction or alcoholism is a denial. We delude ourselves into believing we are in control when, in fact, we're not. Maybe that's the greatest of the character defects, a complete lack of self-control. Uh, you don't want to use or drink, but you do it anyway. Right. Dishonesty is always believing that the outcome will be different. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, and it's found so foundational to a real, con- real conscious awareness of your higher power to have those channels cleared. It's almost like the dishonesty and the denial just clogs up the channels. Well, I think that you're right about that, and we always, uh, uh, you know, as a part of practicing the steps, uh, take a moment to clear a channel to our higher power to hope that we receive inspiration. I don't know about everyone else, but I can. Take a break right now. We'll be right back, and we'll come back to that uh, idea of the higher power. Thanks, Arthur, and thanks for listening with us. We'll take a short break and be right back. Do you sometimes feel as though the door to happiness has closed and there's no other door in sight? In her book, Ask Yourself This, Unity Minister Wendy Craig Purcell reminds us that Everything happens for a reason. We've all experienced situations which felt like anything but good. We may have lost our job or gone through a divorce or experienced some other dark night of the soul. Yet those very experiences, when met spiritually, can lead us to a much greater good. The lost job can be what finally motivates us to discover the work that truly feeds our soul. The ending of a marriage can trigger us to do the emotional healing and personal growth work we've been avoiding for years. Every one of us can look back at negative or painful experiences in our lives and say that they turned out to be the best, worst things that ever happened to us. For more insight from Wendy Craig Purcell, read Ask Yourself This from Unity House Books. If you're focused on getting the right answers, Ask Yourself This emphasizes the importance of asking the right questions. Order your copy today at www.unity.org. Universe responding. Universe responding. How do you really transform that thought you've held in your mind into a reality in your life? How do you work in partnership with God to co-create the life that you've always imagined? One way is through the universe responding spiritual model for life. Each week, Valerie Crabtree will share how to use the universe responding elements and principles to co-create your life through continuous communication with your higher power. She'll answer your questions using this practical, understandable concept, and your life will change. Listen to Universe Responding on Monday mornings at 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern, here on Unity FM, the voice of an awakening world.
listening to Spirit of Recovery, the place where spirituality and recovery meet with Reverend Anna Schaus, Ph.D. If you have a question, comment, or experience with today's topic you'd like to share, call us now or email us at spiritofrecovery at unity.fm. We now return to Spirit of Recovery. Welcome back to Spirit of Recovery. We're very glad that you're joining us today. And if you're uh, just getting on board with us, our topic is Honesty, the Foundation of Spiritual Living, Lighting the Path to Spiritual Recovery. And my guest talking with us today about honesty and how important it is, it's just such a foundation, is my guest Arthur Messenger, and that's a pseudonym. Arthur is the author of the book, Living the Twelve Steps of Recovery, which is a wonderful exposition of the steps, uh, very readable, very inspirational, um, has beautiful uh, line drawings in it of people that are in recovery, and it's just a wonderful book. You can read more about Arthur and the book at www.living12stepsrecovery.com, and that's all those words spelled out, living12stepsrecovery.com. And um, Arthur is uh, practiced in communication management and also in writing. He's written essays, interviews, poetry that have been published and an award-winning play about 9-11. And so uh, you can also read his blog and find out more about him at that living12stepsrecovery.com website. So Arthur, uh, you're uh, sharing some great ideas with us about honesty, and you have a story about honesty. Share that with us. Thanks, Anna. When I was first in recovery, I had a sponsor that used to describe my uh, intuition. I I thought that I had this wonderful insight um, when I was active that allowed me to be clairvoyant and and discern uh, uh, future events. (laughs) I thought that I was a a bit of a psychic and um, uh, that I had an inspirational instinct. And and so as a result of that, I commonly led myself into what, you know, we would all think of of paranoid premonitions. I thought, you know, oh, this is what's going to happen. And the way that I did is, uh, you know, I came to the point where I always thought that I was going to be uh, right. And, in fact, more often than not, uh, things didn't turn out the way that I thought or the, the way that, uh, you know, um, I, I even expected them to. And my sponsor told me, he said, well, look at it this way. We'll call it Jay's Crystal Ball. Knows everything and sees nothing, you know. And uh, 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 he impressed upon me to the point that that I really don't know what's going to happen in the future. There really isn't any point in trying to project. And that is a form of dishonesty that I had with myself that perhaps maybe uh, haunts some of uh, your listeners, you know, and I I hope that it will uh, be helpful to them to uh, realize that that I have come to a point in my life now to where I am so busy trying to live in the the sunlight of the spirit, the present, you know, that, uh, that I have given up on that. And it doesn't haunt me anymore. Thank you. That's a good story. That's really a good story. It, it's a good reminder for us all. That's for sure. That's a good one. Arthur, you have uh, are now working on a book called Tales from the Center of the Herd. And uh, you're writing it from some interviews with some people that probably know a lot about honesty. Tell us about that book and why you picked that interesting title. 
Well, the interview that I read, um, excuse me, uh, the interview that I'm about to read uh, is with a, a, a couple that are both now deceased, uh, Jan and Fran P. Uh, Jan and Fran were pretty famous in terms of their service to my fellowship because they took the big book and the message of uh, recovery from alcoholism to Romania. And they actually smuggled big books in in a trunk. Um, that's how great they were about carrying the message. But Jan uh, told me one time, you know, that uh, that the way that we describe uh, m- many times uh, the best of the stories are from people that are in the center of the herd. Amongst my fellowship, it's often uh, said as a, a regular quip, one of our many sayings that you know the best thing to do is stick with the winners, and they're always at the center of the herd. So it was as a result of that 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 title just came down to me one day. But what happened was that when I wrote the book in 2003, uh, you know, I mean, it's a big book. You know, by the time I got done adding the chapter on prayer and meditation, uh, it's 450 or so pages. And I thought to myself, you know, the big book, the way that it was originally written, most of the first 164 pages is the meat and potatoes of the program, but everything after that is stories, and I just don't have any room to do that. And So I decided that what I would do is I would find people in the center of the herd that had 20 or more years of sobriety, and, and we call them old-timers in my circles. And, you know, we all listen to them because they have experience, um, and and they actually uh, have wisdom as a result of that experience. So today, um, I brought one of those interviews with me, and uh, I would love to read it for you and your audience if you'd like. We'd love to hear it. And this is from Jan, and who is... Jan and Fran P. They're both passed away, but um, All right, great. I'll always remember them as really great people and a, a big influence in my life. And the great. title of the interview is called The Sound and the Fury of Sobriety. Fran was a uh, English uh, literature uh, professor at a university in my area, and uh, he liked to write uh, uh, these little quips of poetry, and his favorite one, one of his favorite ones was this. We tend to forget in times of reversal that life without risk is endless rehearsal. (laughs) Here's the interview. At a vibrant and vivacious young 70, the 31st of January will bring Jan P. 38 years of sobriety. She says that her husband, Fran, had the best understanding of AA of anyone I've known. Here is their story. Please tell us, Jan, about your life and what it was like before you got sober. My father and mother divorced when I was quite young, and my dad didn't drink until the later years of his life. He was a compulsive gambler, always chasing the dream. He died alcoholically, I think, though we had lost contact with each other. My mother was a great social drinker, and I have one brother who has been in the fellowship for 35 years. I was one of those competitive types. God, I have a scholarship. God, I have straight A's. The first time I drank, it was wonderful. It did it for me. One of the big reasons my drinking, for my drinking was that I couldn't have children. Jan met Fran at the University of Missouri, where, and he was from California. Sophisticated, he drank wine, and she was young, naive, pretty, and taken with him. We weren't dating at that time. 
but we were in the same group. I loved drinking and had an enormous capacity, except for the time I got so sick on martinis that I swore I would never drink them again. We got married, moved to California where I worked at the university, and he worked towards his doctorate at USC in Los Angeles. We had fantasy fun with our daily drinking, which was most often a fifth a day. I would bring volumes of the National Geographic home, and we would sit and drink, planning these international trips and cruises that we would never take. That was the 60s, and we were such a part of the beat generation and so full of ourselves. We thought we were just too wonderful for words and even knew the poet, Allen Ginsberg. Alcohol really worked for us. Fran was going to class, I was working, and although we were poor, if there was money, there was money to drink. We'd worry about other things later. I would use a red marking pen on my lips instead of buying lipstick so we would have money for beer and a half pint of 10 high for Boilermakers. We moved to Tucson and the University of Arizona where our little house in the desert had a bar in the living room. Although there was a view of the mountains, we kept the curtains drawn and it was like a little cave with candles in there. We would go to bars and talk loudly about each other so people would be impressed with us, lying to bartenders about our lives. We went to dinner, drank, and passed out. Cute and slim with nice clothes, we had a need for acceptance, which we got from going out. Somehow, if the bartender knew our name, we felt really good. We went on this way for two or three years, and Fran's health started to show the signs of our heavy drinking. He was jaundiced, and he had gotten a kind of an alcoholic arthritis. We had been married for about 10 years then, and when one of us would talk of change and leaving our apathy, the other would be drunk, and we'd talk ourselves out of it. The years slipped by until the university told Fran that they would not renew his contract as he had not written his dissertation. Every day he would get up, sharpen the pencils, and arrange everything on the desk preparing to write, and then nothing would happen. So, Jan, what happened to bring you two to AA? January 31st, 1966, I was at work, and Fran called me saying that he had actually been floating around the kitchen like astral projection or a shaman shape-shifting. He said the only way that he could keep from floating up to the kitchen ceiling was to hang on to the bar top. I took the situation quite calmly and asked him to hang on with both hands as I truly believed he was teleporting himself around the house. We were all into science fiction, and he was in the Twilight Zone. He had called to tell me that he had spoken with Alcoholics Anonymous and that someone was coming over that night to talk about our drinking. I thought to myself, my dear, you're drinking, you mean. I only drink to be a good wife. He told me not to worry because he hadn't given them his real name. Then I called a cab and had them stop by the liquor store. This being a big emergency, I had the cab driver get a fifth of scotch. I didn't drive in those days. I didn't want to drink and drive, so I quit driving because I wasn't going to quit drinking. When I got home, I immediately began cleaning up, putting dishes in the refrigerator and under the bed. I lit candles. Fran went over and sat in a chair so he wouldn't float away. I am telling you this to exemplify the irrationality of our drinking. 
When the man from AA came in and knocked on the door, I ran and hid my drink in the closet. He was a retired U.S. Air Force major, a teacher, well-dressed and articulate, and he used to say that when he saw us, he thought, oh boy, two for the price of one. He asked where I had hidden my drink and said that I could get it and that he could handle it. This was good because I thought if I drank in front of him, he might start foaming at the mouth, being alcoholic and all. He had brought Unfortunately, big books our, time is, our time is almost up, so I'm going to have to ask you to skip some of the middle and just read us the punchline at the end. And uh, Sorry that we're going to have to miss some of the story. Oh, that's okay. Um, Our program was the most important thing in our lives, before church, before anything. We knew that without it, we wouldn't have anything. AA, in my mind, is the only true democracy left. It is the only place I have ever been where I feel truly that it makes absolutely no difference that I am a woman. In dealing with Fran's death a year ago, I found what I am feeling today, this too shall pass. A day doesn't go by that I don't get a phone call, a card, an email, something from someone in the fellowship. Knowing that anyone, uh, any time of the day there would be dozens of people that I could call overwhelming or comfort you. For some women, their first year in AA is characterized by what I used to be like, what happened, and what I wore. Once you get beyond that, all you want is the energy and the loving family of our fellowship. Arthur, thank you so much. You have given us such a gift today, and thank you for all the writing that you do and and uh, for the blessing that you are to the to the folks of in recovery and it's exciting be exciting to read this book and all these wonderful stories listeners thanks for joining us today and be back with us again next week here on spirit of recovery have a great week great talking to you anna and everyone else you as well arthur thanks so much Thank you for tuning in to Spirit of Recovery with Rev. Anna Schaus, Ph.D., and her guests. Join Anna and her guests live every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Central, 2 p.m. Pacific for down-to-earth ideas on keeping spirituality in the heart of your recovery. Spirit of Recovery, only on Unity FM, the voice of an awakening world. This program is brought to you in part by Soul Matters Ministry in Olympia, Washington, committed to bringing light to the soul. Online at www.soulmatters-spiritworks.org. How's life working for you? Would it be okay with you if it got easier, simpler, yet more meaningful, more vibrant? Join Reverend Carla McClellan Tuesday afternoons for spiritual coaching, creating a vibrant life. Each week, Carla visits with leading-edge coaches as they explore the sacred purpose and stunning results of this exciting and emerging coaching model. Together, they reveal the secrets and successes of this transformational process. Call in and join the discussion as Carla creates a safe and sacred space to dialogue about real life and real world transformations. That's Spiritual Coaching, Living a Vibrant Life with Reverend Carla McClellan. Tuesdays at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern, right here on Unity FM, the voice of an awakening world. Inspiration only takes a moment. 
Rev. Dr. Thomas Shepard shares this from his book, Good Questions. We are here to learn, grow, experience, savor, exalt, cherish, create, and to use our connection with that mind to make safe decisions. We are here to share, to be fruitful, and to multiply the good over and over again. Centering on the divine within, we become still and realize that whatever happens, we are still one with God. This meditative moment is brought to you by Unity. Since 1977, Omega Institute in New York's beautiful Hudson Valley has hosted some of the best spiritual teachers and social visionaries, sharing their messages of hope, healing, and transformation. On the Dropping In podcast, hosted by Emmy Award-winning producer Callie Alpert, you will enjoy in-depth interviews and conversations with people like Pema Chodron, Jack Kornfield, John Kabat-Zinn, and many others on the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Also, check out the video series on Spotify. Spotify. 